Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. We get an opportunity to hear some of the uh, wonderful guests that we've spoken to on JM in the AM. Uh, the incoming uh, president of the OU, Mr. Moshe Bain, uh, joined us to discuss a variety of things, including the big January 15th event at City Field, Torah at City Field. Moshe Bain was our guest on JM in the AM, and we featured that conversation here on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, Mr. Uh, Moshe Bain is with us uh, live via telephone. He is the incoming president of the Orthodox Union on the OU slate of the Board of Directors for 2017. He is um, listed as president and will assume that position uh, in just a couple of weeks, uh, in addition to um, uh, discussing the uh, happenings at the OU. We'll take a few minutes to talk about the event happening on January the 15th at City Field, entitled Torah at City Field, uh, which is coming up again January the 15th. We'll have details in just a moment. Uh, Mr. Moshe Bain, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. Pleasure to speak with you. I say congratulations, Mazel Tov. It must be very exciting as you embark on the presidentship of the Orthodox Union. It certainly is. The opportunities that are being afforded to me to play this role are incredible, and I very much appreciate it and very eager to get going. By the way, I you know today as I'm looking through the slate of the board of directors and, and, and really scrolling through all the names of people who are involved today and then when you think about the uh, the the hundred year history of the OU, it is uh, amazing the number and the quality of people that are involved today, and the legendary names that have been involved for so many past decades. It must be heartwarming to assume this position, knowing that you really have this incredible uh, history and this incredible support system in the present at the Orthodox Union. Well, absolutely. It's, I think more than heartwarming, it's humbling and uh, big shoes to fill, and uh, I look forward to doing that. You know, when you talk about the enormous talent at the Orthodox Union it's in its various components, I, I feel sort of like a, a guy who gets to sit on the dugout in, in the Yankee Stadium with all the superstars, <laughs> and uh, as a uh, simple lawyer who gets to play with the big league guys who are running NCSY and JLIC and Yachad and, and the other divisions of the OU, it's really, really incredible opportunity for me. Well, it is. Uh, I, we love sports analogies. That's number one <laughs> over here. And number two, it's, uh, I think I said this on an earlier program, if we would in fact dedicate a chunk of time to every little aspect and every big aspect of what the OU covers, it, it might take a 24-hour marathon of programming. It's unbelievable. Um, and perhaps longer. It, it is really incredible. All right, let, let's talk first about the Torah at City Field. What a unique event. And talk about you know sports and, and incorporating Torah with sports. Uh, but people who think it might be outdoors on the field, they don't have to worry. It's not like one of those outdoor concerts at City Field where you have to freeze. This is actually indoors at City Field. We've been to events indoors at City Field. They are they are wonderful. The space is incredible. It really is a beautiful atmosphere. And now you're bringing an incredible lineup again uh, to January the 15th at City Field to experience Torah at City Field. Tell me how this whole event came about. I, I think it's really a, a part of an evolution of perspective of what the Orthodox Union could provide to the community. Um, you know, we all understand that Torah study is integral to being a Orthodox Jew, to being a Torah Jew. And without study, you really don't appreciate the richness and the fulfillment that 
that our religion has to offer. The problem is that many people don't see their role in Torah. They don't see an aspect of Torah that speaks to them in which they could be engaged in on an ongoing basis. So what we're trying to do is put together such a wide array of speakers, such a wide array of topics that people could come and taste and see what tastes good to them and what they could build on. You know, one of the things, for example, that we did on the website, which lists all of the speakers and the topics, is that behind every speaker's name and picture is a link to shiurim that they give. And you're able to find what types of shiurim, what types of classes will speak to you that you could get engaged in, because everyone has to find their place in the study of Torah. Well, the Orthodox Union invites everybody for this amazing day where you'll hear inspirational voices uh, during an unprecedented day of Torah. There'll be sessions on Torah, Halacha, Hashkafa, Eretz Yisrael. They'll all be available during the day. Topics include Kiddush Hashem, Torah engagement, setting priorities, conversion controversies, an entire array of topics. January the 15th, beginning at 8.45 in the morning, all the way until 6.15 at City Field in Flushing. There's free parking and plenty of it. There's lunch available for purchase. Uh, there is a um, registration site at ou.org slash city. That's ou.org slash city, C-I-T-I. And if you use that website, you can register for the event and uh, participate on the 15th. What's the reaction so far? It has been incredible. I mean, there has been an outpouring of registration way beyond our expectations and the calls that we're getting and the excitement that's being generated really reflects the eagerness of the community to be learning and to find aspects of learning that they will enjoy. So it's really, really uh, exciting. And I hesitate to mention names because we wouldn't get to everybody, but the lineup really is remarkable. I mean, you're talking about a cross-section of some of the most incredible Torah giants and academics, plus people coming in from Israel as well. So you you have all the bases covered, so to speak. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) We love sports analogies. (laughs) But you're right, and, and that was exactly what we're trying to provide, people with an opportunity to hear speakers that they may not have had an opportunity to hear in the ordinary course living in New York and the larger tri-state area. And that's why we're bringing in speakers from Israel, speakers from Rosh Hashivas, from Silver Spring, and from Miami and elsewhere, to give people an opportunity to connect and find the, the voice that speaks to them, because there are incredible voices out there, each with their own style, each with their own approach to learning, and that's what we'll have a chance to experiment and, and see. Mr. Moshe Bain is with us in coming press. President of the OU, uh, the uh, I mean, some of it uh, may have come out already in this conversation because it does seem like you have an incredible dedication to adult education and to the uh, you know, to the uh, desire uh, to make sure that everyone has access to Torah and, and at least tries it out. So they'll see how much it can be incorporated into their own lives in terms of Torah education. Are, are there other major challenges in the Orthodox community that you walk into this position uh, envisioning and you know trying to tackle? Not challenges. I think there are major opportunities. I think people are looking for inspiration, and people looking are looking to grow in their in their religion and their spirituality. And I think the Orthodox Union is a unique place in the spectrum of Orthodoxy to provide and to explore opportunities for people to do that. And I think what we intend to continue to undertake is to identify different vehicles for people to grow, whether it's in learning or in prayer or in chesed, etc., or in kiruv. I mean, there are so many ways of expressing our commitment to Yiddishkeit and our growth, the Orthodox Union, because of its wide spectrum, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. of activities and the communities that it is involved with, really is able to try to experiment, identify programs and styles and, and, and devices that people could use to inspire themselves and get more involved in their spiritual growth. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the organization 
has done what you just described, uh, really for young and old. You know, for those of us who've benefited from the summer programs for our kids, and you mentioned JLIC, and we know what's going on on the college campuses around the country, and obviously so many other things at the OU that have that are targeted for adults and and uh, uh, middle aged and then older people. I mean, it seems like they continue to grow every single area of our community as best as possible. And uh, one of the challenges might be. You know, what hasn't the OU covered to this point? And how do, you know, they're doing so many things so well, you know, how do we improve on things that need to be improved? And uh, it, it must be, uh, it must, that, that in itself must be a, a challenge as you walk into this position. Well, not really. We, we all know that the, the array of, of Torah is vast and way beyond our, our grasp, so yeah. we'll never cover it all. The, the needs of people, whether they be the disabled, whether they be the impoverished, whether they be those who have different kinds of handicaps, psychological or physical, they're all out there and need to be continually addressed. And, you know, one of the interesting things about our experience is that times evolve and technology evolves, and therefore opportunities are approaching us that were never available before, using technology, using the media, as you do so well, <laughs> that we could identify avenues that weren't even able to be contemplated 10, 20, 30 years ago. So this is always going to be exciting. There's always going to be new opportunities to identify techniques and approaches that the community will benefit from. Yeah, no question about it. That's true. There's a lot of work to be done, and... Uh and uh, many things that are needed in our community. Well, come here, some of the Torah world's greatest speakers, everybody. They are calling it Torah in the City Indoors at City Field. January the 15th. You can register now by going to uh, org slash city, org slash city, C-I-T-I. The list of speakers, and as uh, Maish Bain mentioned, uh, links to their uh, shiurim, uh, to samples of their shiurim, are uh, available online at ou.org slash city, and uh, this is turning out to be already a very successful event numbers-wise, and no doubt it will be an incredible event on January the 15th. Uh, Mr. Mike Bain, congratulations. Uh, good luck on this uh, amazing uh, um, uh, appointment, I guess, election, we would say, and uh, as president of the OU, incoming president, and uh, we'll see you on January the 15th. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing event for the Jewish community. Thank you, Nachum, and keep up your great contribution to the community. Much appreciated. There he is, Mr. Maish Bain. He takes over as OU president in January next month, and January the 15th, a unique event happening at City Field in uh, Queens, New York, uh, with all those topics, all those sessions, and all those incredible educators, uh, rabbis and academics from around the world who are going to be participating uh, in that uh, OU program. So it's time for Torah at City Field, everybody. Make sure you register and do so today at OU.org slash city, OU.org slash city. That was our conversation with incoming OU president, Mr. Moshe Bain, regarding the January 15th event and many other items on this edition of JM Rewind. I'll tell a tale, 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 tale yeah. Of Maccabees in Israel L, 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 Yeah. When the Greeks tried to assail, sell, sell, sell yeah. But it was all to no avail, veil, veil, veil Yeah, yeah The war went on and on and on Until the mighty Greeks were gone Yeah I put my lockers in the air sometimes Saying it
stay for real, 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 real. Those Maccabees, they never yield, 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 yield. They charge ahead the with sword and shield, 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 shield. Yeah, yeah, the war went on and on and on until the mighty Greeks were gone. Saying hey spin the dreidel Just wanna celebrate for all late nights Singing hey light the candle We say ma-o-tune, oh yeah, for all late nights Then we play dreidel by the candlelight And I told you once, now I told you twice About the miracle of the candlelight Minora For eight days It kept on burning What a celebration A great return To Torah learning Cause I, I, I Can feel it And I, I, I Nezgadol 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 Hayasham Nezgadol Often my laughter's in the air sometimes Saying hey spin the dreidel Just wanna celebrate for all late nights Singing hey light the candle We say my Hi, everyone. You're listening to a JM Rewind and Chagai Kimmelman uh, from Israel from the Gesher Project was a guest of ours last week. Uh, in this conversation, we discuss the commitment that the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs has made to the diaspora and specifically their activities during Diaspora Week that they designated. Chagai Kimmelman, my guest on JM and the AM and for you right here at JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Many of you are familiar already if you listen to this radio broadcast on any type of regular basis with some of the amazing work of the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs in Israel. And uh, we are told that this week, Dafka this week, the week before Hanukkah, um, uh, they and others have dedicated the week to strengthen the connection to diaspora Jews. Now imagine a week ago we were in Israel delivering a message about how diaspora Jews have this uh, tremendous uh, affection, love, and appreciation for Israeli soldiers. Um, we have seen, uh, specifically over the last few months, how in Israel there's an amazing and incredible effort to reach out to Jews in the diaspora. Chagai Kimmelman is uh, with us live via telephone from Israel. He's the community project manager at Gesher Leadership Institute. Chagai, welcome to JM in the AM, and Chag Hanukkah Sameach to you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I greatly appreciate it. Tell our listeners, what is the Gesher Leadership Institute? So, uh, Gesher in general is an institution that uh, does a connection between uh, secular and uh, orthodox and uh, ultra-orthodox and uh, traditional people in Israel. The idea is to connect people from different uh, beliefs, from different backgrounds, 
from different sectors and uh, to sit together and to know each other and break stereotypes. What we do with uh, the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs is a new project called Project Community, and uh, we expand our horizon not only to speak about Israel society, but also to open ourselves to the Jewish people around the world, to diaspora Jewry, also all, all type of Jews around the world, North America, South Africa, uh, etc. How is it done? You know, it's funny because we, we have uh, emphasized for years the incredible relationship one way between the diaspora Jews and Israel, but we've seen over the last few years this incredible movement from Israel toward diaspora, sort of the project that you are, are speaking of. What system do you use? What type of projects do you undertake in order to accomplish the goal? So, so first of all, in order to create a, to con- a connection between people and to do things together, you have to know each other. And we believe that a lot of diaspora Jews know Israel through coming to Israel with groups, birthright, other programs, not so many Israelis know about diaspora jury right. if they're not involved with that in their business. So we take, we take um, opinion makers in Israel. We take people from the first sector, private sector, people from the academia, from diaspora, and we teach them about diaspora jury. We teach them the history. We teach them different denominations, different backgrounds, different communities. And we also take them for about a week's trip to different communities, and we meet all kinds of people, students in Hillel, uh, schools, rabbis, different organizations, political organizations, and we meet different people, and we kind of dwell into that community to understand not only, like, the, you know, the, the headlines, but really understanding the life and the character of that jury, uh, where we go. Do they, get, do they get how different life is outside of Israel than in Israel? So first of all, like, yes, first of all, we have a few meetings in Israel. We talk about the difference between living in a Jewish country versus a Jewish community. And we have this kind of lectures about it. But then when they get off the plane and they walk into a JCC or they walk through in a Jewish day school or they meet people in Hillel, actually you see how the penny goes down, how the quarter goes down in their eyes. You can see they understand uh, what does it mean, what's the big differences. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing to see that. I'm involved with this for Past 15 years, I'm talking about it. I'm a tour guide. I used to work in the Jewish agency for nine years. And to see other people that actually didn't know about it, actually understand the importance of it and how it's different and how it's diverse and how it's amazing and you can learn so much about it, it's really touching. Yeah, some of the, some of the encounters must be fascinating. Uh, but, you know, we don't realize it sometimes because the corridors, I like to say, between North America and Israel is so active, so we're so familiar with each other, you know, going one way. Uh, we don't realize how, you know, people living in Israel would have no clue uh, what culture is like or what life is like in general for people outside of Israel, for those living in the diaspora. 100%. And you see also our groups, what's, what's unique in our groups is that we have people uh, from Israel that are orthodox and secular and ultra-orthodox, left-wing, right-wing, and when they come together and meet kind of a mirror way of, of their identity, it's amazing because they, I call it being a, a proactive Jew, rather a reactive Jew. In Israel, you can be a reactive Jew. You know, everything is, everything is Jewish. If you're secular, if you're, or if you're uh, religious, in, in America or in anywhere in the diaspora, whatever you do, you have to be proactive. Right. If, if, if Yom Kippur is on Tuesday, you have to make a day off. And, <laughs> and that's what you take it for granted. And for Israelis to learn about it, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, really, uh, it's really fascinating to see that things are changing and, and this awareness is really growing. Hi, Guy Kimmelman with us, Community Project Manager, Gesher, 
Leadership Institute. I mean, does this continue the, to grow the program? Are you seeing people in Israel more and more interested in participating? And are the communities around the world are, are they increase are they increasing in number in terms of their interest in having your your a crew there? So our, our our specific project is like for really people that are leaders and opinion makers, and we pinpoint we find them, and and we have this we have just came back from LA. That was our third, our third uh, course. We're going to South Africa in a few weeks. Then wow. we're going to New York and Washington. A lot of people are interested. Uh, we, we, we look for people. We allocate people that it's not only they will change, but also they will affect the community. Or if they write a newspaper, if they, whatever they do, if they're educators, the leaders, their message, their understanding will sift into Israel society through what they learned about who, in who, our project. Who's great at this? Do you have a name or two that we might or might not be familiar with in Israel that are really good at what you're describing? I think there's a famous guy called Abraham Inifeld. Right. He was to be the head of Hillel. I think you you, you probably heard about sure. uh, him uh, pretty much. Yeah. There's also uh, Shmuel Rosner. He's, also, he's a writer in New York Times, but in Israel he writes books about American Jewry, uh, but also here in our institutions, people that that work in this field, like that they they kind of you know I, that's what they do for many years. Uh, in people in the University of Diaspora, and of course in Gesher, uh, which we are the partners uh, about this specific right. uh, project. So you have a really strong team, to say the least. I, I know that. I mean, we're speaking about Gesher, and obviously that's your expertise. But but a comment or two about this whole effort, as symbolized by this week with the uh, Ministry of Diaspora Affairs. Uh, of this incredible uh, rush to really reach out from Israel to the diaspora in many ways. I mean, in some ways, obviously, it's always happened, but in many ways, it has never happened with this type of acceleration, with this type of interest. What, what, what's your impression in general of this whole effort? So I'll tell you, first of all, as they say in uh, Yiddish or in Hebrew, it's a chidush. Right. It's a new thing. It's a new idea. Yeah, the chidush is the world of Talmud. It's a chidush because it's a change of, of a paradigm. You know, a lot of Israelis were either unconscious about the Esther jury, thought that it's people that, you know, will, will be good with PayPal, will maybe donate money, or people that uh, if something bad happens to them, will go and save them. But actually to see other communities as partners, as people that are individual, as people that the, the connection is not only instrumental, but, but a connection of identity, of learning from each other, that's the new voice. Because you can talk about the action, but you also have to talk about the why. Why are we doing it? Why is it important? What has changed since the days of the Six-Day War where all the American Jews were praying about Israel? Things are changing politically. Things are changing Jewishly. Things are changing universally around the world. And we have to, as the Jewish people, be ready for these changes and, and, and initiate these connections. It's one of the reasons why for the last year we've been emphasizing how incredible it is that the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs has recognized this and has really acted Upon it, it's pretty amazing. Chagai Kimmelman, he's community project manager at Gesher Leadership Institute. You mentioned you're coming to New York. I hope you'll stop by our studio one morning. <laughs> okay, it'll be a pleasure. Feel free I'll to do so. Contact. The folks in the diaspora okay. will be more than happy to welcome you. I can tell you that much. hundred <laughs> percent. Thank you, Chagai, and Chag Chanukah Sameach. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Have a lovely Hanukkah. Thank you so much. There he is, Chagai Kimmelman. That was my conversation with Chagai Kimmelman of the Gesher Project. Here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm feeling pretty great. Got locus on my plate. I love this.
Listening to JM Rewind, Meryl Gruber was a guest of ours recently on JM in the AM. She's written a book to help youngsters and really uh, older people as well uh, cope with loss, uh, cope with the loss of a family member and all the changes that go on when that happens. Meryl Gruber was our guest on JM in the AM. We feature her conversation now on JM Rewind right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. There's a brand new book out there. It's called Where Has Zadie Gone? And the author is Meryl Gruber, who is with us live via telephone on this Tuesday morning. Meryl Gruber, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you so much for having me, Nachum. A pleasure. Where has Zadie gone? It's a brand new book. Tell us what it's about. Well, basically, I was looking for some books to give my four-year-old and eight-year-old nephews last year, and I wasn't able to find any book to teach them about loss, because unfortunately... Children do experience loss. You know, Bubbies and Zadies pass away, or a parent passes away. 
And because of this, I took pen to paper, and in a very non-threatening, warm, and reassuring book, I wrote about a little girl named Goldie, and she's wondering what's happening to her family because here her Zadie has gone. She was told that he went to live with Hashem and Shemayim, and here her mommy's not taking her to daycare, and her aunts and uncles are sitting on low chairs in in her house, and she wanted to know what's going on. And then, unfortunately, my mother passed away soon after, and I found out that my four-year-old nephew was asking the same exact questions that Goldie was asking. So mm. this is really a book for the young and how to explain to them where Bubby or Zadie or anyone else has gone in a very warm, non-threatening book. And it sounds like not just the concept of you know where people go and, and end of life and things like that, but it sounds like trying to explain to them all the procedures and different things that happen in a Jewish home once all of that has happened. Exactly. Through a very warm conversation with her bubby, Goldie understands what Shiva means and what the family goes through during Shiva and why people come to pay a Shiva call and just what wonderful things families go through in a time of mourning. And when I say that, I just mean that you can learn all about the good that someone has done when you didn't even know about it to begin with, Goldie didn't know what a tzaddik her grandfather was and how much chesed he gave and what he did for other families. And now when people are coming to pay a shiva call, the young can learn about the older generation, not that they were born bubbies and zadies, right. and that it's okay to miss them and it's okay to ask questions. Book is called Where Has Zadie Gone? Meryl Gruber with us live via telephone on this Tuesday morning. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much research you did specifically on this question, but in general in our community, uh, is the is the default, is the more common practice to avoid these types of conversations with children and grandchildren? Is, is that what you found, or, or that was not the, you know, one of the reasons why you decided to write the book? Well, that's not the main reason why I wrote the book, but I do work in an early childhood center as a social worker, and I did find many times when tragedy befalls a family, you know, the kids are pushed off to this aunt or they're going over to this friend, and it's avoided only because, A, time is of the essence, and, B, sometimes you don't know how to explain on a child's level what exactly happened. And then, just like it says in the book, Bubby says to Goldie that Zadie didn't move like your cousin Mordechai moved when he went to Lakewood. He, you know, Baruch Hashem, he finished his tafkid in life, his mitzvahs were done, he was loved, and now he went to go live with Hashem and Shemayim, and it's okay to miss him and and to think about him. Meryl Gruber is with us. Um, I don't want you to give too much away. We want people to go out there and, and enjoy buying and reading the book. But but nonetheless, is there any general advice, and you, you really just did this with your last answer, you know, to an extent, but is there general advice that you could give people who are facing this situation they dread you know, even before you know the inevitable happens, they may be thinking about it already as somebody who's very ill, uh, and they're dreading the day when they have to sit down with their young children or grandchildren and address this issue. Is there a general attitude or a general you know pep talk you can give people before experiencing that? That's a great question, Nachum, and I thank you for asking that. And yes, avoidance is not the answer. Don't put it off. It's always good to prep the child because a child thrives on routine and schedule. And even if a family member is very ill, the child's schedule and routine is already being disruptive, and they don't know what to expect, and they don't know if their life will ever return to normal. So be as upfront as you can with the child. But again, 
on a child's level. Don't scare them, but just let them know what's going to happen and things may change for a, a week or even a month, but eventually, eventually things will return and it's okay to cry and it's okay to ask questions. That's really the most important part. Be upfront with the children and let them know what's happening to their own family. Mm-hmm. Meryl Gruber, author of Where Has Zadie Gone? By the way, the title itself suggests, and I think based on this conversation we now know, that the book is really, you know, for those kids, for the young adults, for the, you know, for those even, even younger than that. But, but there may be some value, and you could speak to this, uh, for the adults, for the older people to actually read the book and get some insight into all of this. You know what? That's exactly right. And it's not funny, but when my sister was reading the book to my four year old nephew, and she didn't understand exactly how to explain everything to my nephew because he just thought Bubby was on vacation, this really, helped my sister explain to my nephew where Bubby was, and no, she wasn't on vacation, but she was still happy, and my sister even began to cry on the last page, and that's what I'm hearing from people who have bought the book, because Goldie does something on the last page that it just, it helps children, and it even helps the adults through a hard time in their life, and it's really to help the entire family. The children bond with their parents, and the parents are there for their children in time of need. So it's really for the whole family. Meryl, I haven't seen the inside of the book yet, but I know you've used a really high-quality illustrator. Are, are the, the photos or drawings really key to all of this? I think so. Um, I worked with Israel Bookshop Publications, and the illustrator, Racheli Edelstein, did a fabulous job. We went back and forth with the drawings. We really wanted everything to be as realistic, but also as, I don't want to say cartoonish, but as easily relatable to children as possible. The Goldie actually looks like my nieces. Bubbies look like the Bubbies. The house looks like the house. There are pictures of Zadies in there. So it's a really relatable, really artistically beautiful book. I mean, Israel Bookshop Publications and Rachele Edelstein did an absolutely wonderful job. All right. Where has Zadie gone? As you heard, it's Israel Bookshop. Where do you recommend, uh, Meryl Gruber, that people uh, purchase the book? Well, it's in Judaica stores everywhere. Uh, they can go to israelbookshoppublications.com, and it's also on Amazon. Yeah. So wherever you could pick up the book. I mean, it might not be the best Hanukkah book because it's not a feel-good, happy-go-lucky book, but it's unfortunately a necessary book because, unfortunately, every family goes through loss, and you don't want to avoid the topic of loss, and you want to be very upfront, like I said, with the child about it, and this is a great way to do that. Actually, when you think about it, it may be a really appropriate time, because, you know, holiday time is family time, and holiday time often, you know, brings back memories of those we've lost, and, you know, makes us remember some of the the key elements of, uh, you know, the holiday celebrations, etc., so maybe the the perfect time to, you know, to sit down a child and, uh, and have them read this book. From your mouth to consumers' ears, I hope. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, the book is called Where Has Zadie Gone? Meryl Gruber is the author. Check it out. It's available everywhere, as you heard. Uh, Israel Bookshop, Judaica Stores, uh, Amazon, etc., etc. Meryl, good luck with the book and a happy Hanukkah Thank to you. Thank you so much. You too. You too. And to everyone else. Where Has Zadie Gone? Meryl Gruber, a guest of ours here at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Meryl Gruber recently on JM in the AM.
Hi, it's Nahum Siegel, and uh, we're uh, presenting JM Rewind. Leon Goldenberg, who is the American share of our incredible mission to Venice that took place uh, in the middle of November, uh, joined me for uh, somewhat of a recap of the incredible time and the incredible um, uh, event that we held in Venice uh, for the Jewish community there uh, 400, excuse me, 500 years after the establishment of the ghetto. Leon Goldenberg, a guest of mine recently on JM and the AM, presented now on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. JM in the AM. Well, we got back from Venice uh, just before Thanksgiving weekend, you'll recall. And we've been trying to uh, get Leon Goldenberg, our American chair for the uh, the Venice uh, Jewish Unity Initiative, on the air. And we have finally succeeded this morning, I'm glad to say. I've said this uh, probably ten times already on these airwaves. Uh, but when we first brought this concept to uh, Leon and mentioned the city of Venice and its Jewish community, his eyes lit up because he knows just how incredible a place it is and uh, just how much spirit the small Jewish community of Venice can use. And anybody out there who visits there, keep that in mind. You have an opportunity to really bring some inspiration and spirit to a uh, to an intense but small Jewish community. Leon Goldenberg, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. So let me tell you, mm. I don't like to bring it up again and again and again. Well, what is it about small communities that woke me up? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's funny. I'm, in preparation for this morning, I'm saying to myself, you know, you travel to a lot of small places, and I can get your perspective, especially for those of us who hang out in the in the luxury of, you know, having millions of Jews around us in these areas. We could talk a little bit about small communities. But, yes, if you go back into the annals of, uh, of JM and the AM history, a lot of people will recall that when we introduced the uh, idea of bringing a safer Torah to Eugene, Oregon, who spearheaded that effort? It was, of course, Leon Goldenberg. That it, was my first introduction, and I, and I say it all the time. And I speak, you know, I am actually I speak at a lot of uh, Shabbos, not a lot. I've a number of Shabbos night learning programs, and yeah. I speak about it. I will tell you clearly, it was one of the highlights of my life. Uh, but the idea of recognizing that there can be, as there were in times of old, right. Small Jewish communities that actually thrived. By the way, you know, I hate to be I hate to be uh, that bold in suggesting this, but one might argue that your introduction to small communities through our efforts in Eugene, Oregon, might be one of the reasons that you're so involved in the leadership of the Shalom Torah Centers. I, I don't deny that. Wow. I don't deny that. Wow. That woke me up to, oh, you know, Kirov had started really. In a, in a large force after the 67 war. Right. Um, it was still an Israeli thing. It was still an Israeli event. Right. And it was just beginning in America. And that's already over 20 years. Yep. And for me, that was really an eye-opening experience to recognize not what we bring to them. And I think that's the mistake that everyone makes. We're going to go to them, and we're going to show them what true Judaism is. Right. <laughs> It They're works. showing us. It works a little differently, huh? It works a little differently. They're showing us you come to these small communities and that they keep everything and that they have everything and that they have their small yeshivas or whatever they may have in order to exist. They are teaching us how to be true Jews. Well, if that, 
Yeah. That's, I think, part of your experience in Venice. Oh, no question about it. And, and just back to the other point for a second, if I get 1% of the credit for what you've done with the Shalom Torah Centers, then I am one thrilled person. But yes, and by the way, Leon... You didn't tell us that be, that at the last minute when you were not able to join us, we understood that and, and we regretted it, but we understood it. You didn't tell us you'd be sending some spies along from your That's area. That's right. That's right. Who, who would literally be in the center of all the dancing going on that yeah, Saturday night yeah. during the Malava Malka and who came over to us afterwards asking where we're going to next because they were so inspired by what we did in Venice, which was great. <laughs> that was really nice. But right. I know. Ellie Lieberman and his wife, right. Ronnie. We're there with another couple. I'm not actually sure who the other couple were, uh, but he actually, I, when I after Shabbos here, I already had from him, you know, pictures and everything. <laughs> I'm telling you, before I'm, you, I know. We we felt like you had a direct <laughs> line, as, as as if you were sitting and watching it. I'm telling you, it was absolutely incredible, and to to have them come over and be so proud of what was happening was amazing. And we there were other people there because you know what it's like. It's Venice. There are people there from around the world every single Shabbos. Mm-hmm. And there were other people from Brooklyn and other areas of this uh, of this um, uh, you know this area of the world that were that happened to be there for Shabbos and saw you know were eyewitnesses to the entire thing. And it's funny because again you, you know you and this was so inspiring to us. The moment we told you about this, you were like you know this is a great idea and you're picking the right place because they could use the chizuk and because it's such an amazing history. And half of the trip, as you know, is bringing that history to our listeners. I mean, it was just a, an amazing experience because 99% of this audience will never have an opportunity to be in Venice and to see all this. And That's a mistake. They should That's go, right? They should go. They should go. Yeah. I, I travel with my wife a lot. Sometimes she says too much. <laughs> it's only Jewish-related. Right. To see where Jews have lived, where they existed, what happened, what became, and if you go and you see and you travel and you understand Jewish history, you need to be a believer. It's impossible to have seen where Jews have been over the centuries, literally over the millennium, right. survived, created communities, and say that there isn't a God, that there isn't a God. These were, these are small, I mean... Venice grew into a large community, but it started off as a little nothing community. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've discussed your family history a number of times, you know. Right. Har, har, hard not to be a believer, you know, with what your family history is all about. So, right. But the Marie Mintz, right. which everybody, he's right from there, that area. Right. And he's buried there. You can go, you can go to these people's farms today, people that lived four or five hundred years ago, that are part of, of, of our, anything that you learn. You start to see this safer, that safer. It's quoted here, it's quoted there. These people lived in these areas, and some of them lived in little, little towns. Uh, from from uh, near Barbanel, when he was thrown out of Spain, went right. to Portugal. Mm-hmm. And then from Portugal, he went there, and he's, they, they don't have his kever. But he's buried in that area, near Venice. Yeah, it is. Uh, look, it's rich with Jewish history. You walk through that ghetto, you walk through the streets, you feel what was going on there 500 years ago and 400 years ago and 300 years ago. I mean, you're talking about an experience that's like none other. Uh, and it just, and you know, all this happening in a very, very small area, as you know. We kept describing it to our listeners. I don't think until you're there. No, you can't. You right. can't. No, you, you, you think of it, uh, you know, especially many people have gone to like the Warsaw ghetto. And it's blocks and blocks. This is one little block. Just a square. That's yeah. it. Shabbos afternoon, we were saying every kid 
growing up in this ghetto 400 years ago was in this square, you know, playing on Shabbos afternoon, basically. It's, it's, whoa, everything okay there? You all right there, Leon? Something, yeah. Something else that people don't realize. Yeah. Skyscrapers. Right. Where were they developed? Correct. It all started there. I choose in Venice. Because you could only build up. You could only build up. You have eight-story buildings in Venice. It's just an incredible sight to see to see these eight-story buildings. You don't have that in Venice, yeah. except in the ghetto. You do see it in other Jewish ghettos because they were forced to live in small areas, and this was part of, in a sense, the punishment that Jews went through because many times they didn't tear down a building like they do today, tear down like in Borough Park, they tear down a one-family, <laughs> put up two, uh, two six families. Right. They had to, while they were living there, they had to build another floor and another floor, and it became very dangerous. Dangerous and also very small. Those floors ended up being, you know, relatively short compared you to... You would not get into some of those floors. Correct. They'd have to let me be on the first floor, Leon. Please, <laughs> out, of, out of mercy, they'd have to let me live on the first floor. Right, right. Some of those floors were not six foot tall. That's for sure. You'd be, uh, you know, walking around on your knees all day. <laughs> so there we go. But so, it, it, it is important to bring Judaism to these places, to give them chizik, but to get chizik from them. No question about it. And we did get a big dose of physics, that's for sure. And I thank you again. Venice trip, uh, certainly a great, great success and recognized as such around the world. Hey, I wanted to get a minute with you uh, since we have you on the phone and you've been so difficult to get a hold of because of all your personal travels over the last couple of weeks. Um, I mean, I know you're watching very carefully as the uh, as the uh, new administration is, is forming in Washington, D.C., or I should say in New York City in Washington, D.C. Could you give us a word about the lessons in the aftermath of this election that that the influence of any group in this country and really any individual in this country is stronger and greater than we think and those who have not yet registered have got to go and do so and if there's one lesson we've learned from the election of 2016 is that literally every vote counts I think that's clear certain states it was a 10,000 count a state right in a national election but the personal relationships are so critical to our community. The personal relationships, I don't know if you saw the story about Saul Werdiger that was floating around. Yes. The two-year-old story. Great story. A great story, but this is a personal relationship. We can create, each one of us can, can call our congressman, and especially a congressman from outside of the New York, New Jersey area, where he doesn't have that many Jews in his, in his corner, and call him and create relationships with them. They want to know. They want to learn. I was called about two months ago by a new congressman. Somebody had uh, set me up with him. He has no Jewish community in his district. He has no Jewish community. He knows he's supposed to be supportive of Israel because it's good for his, but he really doesn't understand it. Mm -hmm. I spent two hours with him. I developed a relationship. We're emailing each other. I'm sending him certain articles. You can develop these relationships. They're so critical. There's no question. And, and we do have a new president, and it was really uh, by a few votes right. across the country. Registering and voting is critical and fundamental. And when you say getting involved in terms of personal relationships, uh, don't discount the young people as well. You would say it to people in their 20s and 30s as well, that they have an opportunity. A hundred percent. The younger, the better. Right. Simple as that. That's usually... That develops a long, long career. 
that you can do this. Don't mm-hmm. stop when you're 80 and say, now I'm going to go out and do it. Now I have the time when I'm 65, now I retire. Don't get me wrong. You retired, you want to do something, it's a great thing to do. But start in your 20s and develop those relationships. Because when you develop relationships with young people that are on the city level and on the state level, you don't know. I mean, this year was an anomaly right? in that both candidates were really not politicians. Right. Um, Clinton was a U.S. senator, but she came from nowhere to become a U.S. senator. I don't mean from nowhere. Right. But she came from, from nowhere. Politically, the different, right. Right. And usually, as you take a look at all the members of the House, all the members of the Senate, they start off as city council people, state assembly, state senate, whatever it is in their state. So by making those relationships when they're young and when they're first starting out and trying to pick out who you think has a possibility of going, you can have the most impact. Like a Saul Werdegar, who did something simple, but there's a, the, the, in the uh, Security Council, when they wanted to pass last year the resolution against Israel uh, to create the Palestinian state. So the U.S. was going to veto it, but they prefer not to veto. They lost by one to Palestinians. They were blown away because one African country that always voted with them voted abstained. And so therefore they didn't have the required, I think, nine or ten votes. Why did that country vote it suddenly? And this is even before the, uh, Netanyahu went to visit South Africa and in Southern Africa. Right. Because there was a Jewish guy in London, or in England, I'm not sure if he's in London, but I think he's in London, Jewish guy that does business in this little country and has created a relationship with the president. Netanyahu actually in one of his speeches mentioned this guy's name because he called up the president of the country and said, don't vote against Israel. Unbelievable. And he didn't vote against Israel, and they lost by one vote. Unbelievable. And the U.S. did not have to use its its, uh, veto power. Relationships can be incredible. Nothing about that story surprises you? That's for sure. No. Leon, I can't thank you enough. Tadarabah, continued the great service to the Jewish world, and thanks for all your support. Okay, till your next trip. Bezrat Hashem. I hope to talk to you before. I hope so. And everyone... I got to talk to you about Shalom before the shoot for Shalom. Don't worry, we'll be we'll be back. We'll certainly be in <laughs> touch. And everyone's asking where the next trip is. We need your input on that. Uh, Leon Goldenberg, everybody. That was my conversation with Leon Goldenberg. You are listening to uh, JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Hanukkah light burns so bright, lifts my soul. Raises my sights Hanukkah light Feels so right Eight small flames Shining through the night Walking in the darkness Sorrow all around Looking for some joy For a hopeful sound Just when I start to give up Seems there's 
Crashing, hit a wall Right now I need a miracle Hurry up now, I need a miracle Stranded, reaching out I call your name but you're not around I say your name but you're not around I need you, I need you, I need you right now I thank you very much for listening to JM Rewind, an opportunity to catch up on some of the things we've been discussing and guests that we've been featuring on JM in the AM. And uh, I thank you for tuning in every single week to JM Rewind and continuing to listen every single day to the Nahum Siegel Network.